This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 20, Cathartic Horror. Fifteen minutes long, because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. And we have two guest stars this time. We have Michael R. Collings and Michael Brent Collings. Um, Would you guys tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've done? I spent 30 years teaching at Pepperdine University. I retired about five years ago when it became clear to everyone except me that I was no longer actually hearing the words my students were saying, but hearing other things. And so they decided, for the, for the sake of questions, I would start answering off in left field, and they were talking about right field, that it would be best if I no longer tried to teach. Especially with teaching creative writing, because the students would get up to read a poem, and I would hear rhyme, and that was about it. That's what I hear every time Howard talks. <laughs> Howard is Charlie Brown's teacher. Yes. <laughs> but, but when everyone talks yes. that way, it becomes a problem. And in the six years since I've retired living in Idaho, I have been writing, rewriting, collecting, and publishing a great many things that I started years ago and a great many things that I have written fresh. I now have uh, nine novels published, eight collections of poetry, both mainstream horror, science fiction, and fantasy, Um, three collections of short essays and short stories. I don't know how many books about science fiction, fantasy, and horror, especially Stephen King, Scott Card, and uh, like 400 reviews. I write and write and write and write. And occasionally someone actually reads it. Michael Brent, tell us about yourself. I'm just glad to be here at the pig contest. (laughs) Um, I was a scummy lawyer for almost a decade. Uh, About two years ago, I suddenly started making money in the last two years, as a writer that is, in the last two years I have uh, had uh, 11 or 12 books uh, come out on Amazon. Uh, six or seven of them have been bestsellers in various uh, categories. One was the number one horror and number one sci-fi title. It was called Run. Uh, another one's called Rising Fears. Did really well on the horror lists. Uh, I also wrote a young adult novel called Billy Messenger of Powers. That's that's consistently been near the top ten thousand for almost two years. Okay. And uh, I also have two movies coming out that I wrote, which are both horror movies. Excellent. That's pretty awesome. Um, Dan, you pitched the, the concept of this one, so why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us about this, pan- this podcast. Yes. Um, I've been on a lot of let's talk about horror panels in my career uh, because you show up at a, at a conference not dedicated to horror and they'll usually pitch you one token panel and it's always the same people and it's always the same topic. Um, and so on one of these, I had the opportunity to be on a panel with, uh, with Dr. Collins and it was fascinating. He gave what I thought, not, not that Porter needs defending, but he gave it the best defense I'd ever heard. And he was talking about how writing horror, reading horror and then writing horror helped him get through uh, some very, very difficult times in his life because no matter how hellish his life became, he was still alive at the end. He, he, it was still better than the characters in that poor book. 
And so um, I'm, I'm actually going to ask, uh, ask him to talk a little bit about that, share some of that, uh, you know, briefly, because we don't have a lot of time, but, but share a little bit of that experience with us, please. Asking, asking a former professor to share briefly is an oxymoron. <laughs> briefly, yes. Uh, I, this has been writing excuses. <laughs> I, I can do it best by giving an example. The, the most successful book I have published is called The Slab. And it was, uh, I guess since last April, it's been the top seller for, for my publisher, Wildside Press, outselling everything except one anthology of Western stories. So I know what I have to write next. <laughs> the Slab is about a family who moves into a house and gradually discovers that the house is falling apart. And in fact, the slab is cracked and things seem to be living down there. In inner chapters, you discover that this house has had problems for many years. It is built on a crime. And every person, every family that's lived in it has been destroyed. When I started writing the slab, 20 years ago, it was because I discovered that we lived in that house. It was falling apart. There were cracks in the slab. The western wall would rise and fall three inches, depending upon whether it was wet weather or dry weather. And in the summer, you could see stars through the, through the crack between the wall and the ceiling. Don't laugh. This isn't funny. It isn't. <laughs> then the roof started leaking. And it leaked for four years, regardless of what we did. And at the same time, I started getting tinnitus and hearing sounds like <laughs> all the time. So I would walk into a room and hear water running. And I knew the roof would be leaking, and I knew it was not raining. And I literally feared for my sanity. And then discovered a number of things, one that I was an undiagnosed uh, bipolar and had been for most of my life and simply assumed that everyone felt the way I did but could handle it and I was deaf and I had tinnitus which would not drive me crazy. So I started writing the story and I couldn't finish it because it was too much for me. After I moved from that house I thought it's my turn now <laughs> and I revisited it and everything that happens in the slab has, well, except for the murder, <laughs> has some root in reality. In the slab, uh, there are some gerbils who suffer untimely ends. In reality, I kept trying to, to keep a fish tank and didn't realize you don't put distilled water in a fish tank. And they kept floating belly up on me. No matter what I tried in that house, it was horrible. So the horror of riding the slab and of recreating those experiences even worse was my way of saying, okay, things are now under my control. I'm okay. I recognize physical lim limitations, but they're not going to take over. And every novel I've done since I retired has at its core the idea that the horror is there because life can be terrible but it could be so much worse. 
I remember um, when I originally took uh, the science fiction fantasy writing class from uh, Dave Wolverton slash Farland um, back in 2000, back before I had any clue what I'm doing, and now I have like one or two, but um, he talked about this concept for all of writing, that the concept was um, writing, when, when we read and we experience all the tension and what's going on with the characters and how horrible things can be, that it actually ha inspires a chemical response in our brains. Um, and it's that same fight or, um, fight or flight response that gears us up to deal with this pain that's happening because we're feeling the empathy of the characters when it's done right. And then when the release happens, when we put down that book or when whatever happens to the characters happens, we have actually been changed physiologically to better handle stress and our own problems. Well, if you think of science fiction, uh, someone once asked recently what would happen if aliens actually landed, and the answer is nothing. We've been preparing for it for 50 years, <laughs> and we know what to watch out for. As far as that physiological response with horror, it's the first one of fear, that chill that just goes up the spine. Uh, I once noted that the closest relative to horror in literary terms is pornography because they're the only two literary forms that are designed to elicit a physiological response. They're different, fortunately, <laughs> and with horror, if you're reading a novel and you go like that, the novel is a success. Or if you're reading, as I did, Dracula for the first time, and you go like this to turn the light out, hover, and bring your hand back, the novel is a success because it has changed you. You have lived in that world, been part of that world, and you are now a different person than you were when you entered it. What you're saying actually reminds me of um, the original fairy tales. And the original fairy tales were uh, significantly darker, and, and really many of them were horror. And one of the one of the things that they did was teach us how to, they were cautionary tales. They taught us how to accept that horrible things happened and how to approach and deal with them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that the, the best horror can do for us as well. It's like, well, you're facing a serial killer. Don't split your party up. Yeah. <laughs> and remember that fairy tales were considered literal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't go in the forest because there are wolves in yes. the forest. And we see them only as stories. Mm -hmm. And we're so distanced from that moment when you could walk out of your hovel door and look up and see a castle on the mountain that we, we fail to recognize the kernel of truth, the warning in so many of the stories we take for granted. There's a, uh, there's a grim tale that no one, no one retells because it's... It's basically, there was an old beggar woman and she walked outside and there was a fire and she got close to the fire and then she caught on fire and burned. And that is pretty much the entire story. a Christmas story. story. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's heartwarming. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. But as a modern reader, I read that and go, WTF. <laughs> but for someone actually living in the period when people regularly caught on fire yes. from getting too close to the hearth, that's a, that's a useful cautionary story. That's something that could happen to any of them. Yeah. My father's grandmother 
was reaching across the wood stove with her long uh, lace trimmed gown and died. So it's not that long ago mm -hmm. that these stories were real and monitory. Don't do this. Now it's don't have sex before you're married or the monster will eat you. <laughs> um, we need to do our book of the week. Our book of the week is uh, actually The Slab by Michael Collings. This is up on Audible. I have read it. I haven't heard the audio, but I've read it. And it is grueling and horrible and, and wonderful. It's, uh, it, 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 it is a chore to get through the awful things that happen to these people, but I really love every minute of it. And so you can find that on Audible. It's audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. You get a free trial copy and a free copy of The Slab by Michael Collins. Okay. So uh, my question for the podcasters then is, as writers, how can you use this? How does this inform you, Dan, as a, as a horror writer, the knowledge of how this works? How can our listeners use this concept to make better fiction? Okay. Um, one thing that you have to be very careful of is if we're talking about uh, you know, horror as catharsis and horror as lesson is you don't want to become didactic. But what it can do is let you it give you a new perspective on something. This is why, for example, uh, every zombie story is really not about zombies. It's about how people react to them. Because though that's where the real story is, and that's the, the lesson, so to speak, that gets taken away. Now, if that lesson hits you over the head too closely, then your audience is going to be upset. But, you know, something in 28 Days Later, for example, where the real bad guy turns out to not be the zombies, it's... The military guy who wants to grab power. That's really what that's about, is reaching too far, grabbing too much power, exerting too much authority. Once you know that about horror, then it helps you find the real story behind the monster. The monster is set dressing. The monster is what allows you to tell the real human story inside of a horror story. You know, there's a, there's a greater lesson here for all science fiction and fantasy writers. Um, I once was... was doing an interview, was, I guess it was a, um, a blog thing where I was posting with someone, and I called all the fantasy, all the world building, all those things, dressing. Um, and it really offended them, because they're like, well, obviously you don't understand the genre, obviously you aren't a great, you know, you, you're, just, you're just throwing this all away. Um, and in my opinion is, they didn't understand storytelling. I love fantasy. I love the magic. I love the world building. However, these things are all dressing. And the core story is what's happening to the people. And you can actually take that dressing away and tell most fantasy books you could write as a science fiction epic um, with changing actually very little. The reason being that science fiction and fantasy do often reach to the same sort of core roots of storytelling for how people react and what we're looking at. And that is what we're talking about here. Understand that everything you're doing, the horror, the fantasy, a lot of the stuff we talk about on this panel, uh, on this podcast, is all about um, what you do after you know how to tell a story that is gripping. You know, if I can, if I can jump in, because Dan told me, jump in. <laughs> um, uh, I, I lost, I will level with you guys, and, and I hope you take this seriously, because this is not a joke, I lost a child. Um, and it was one of the worst things, obviously, that's ever happened to me. I wrote a series of screenplays yeah, one of which sold and is going to be coming out as a movie, um, and books, Rising Fears, uh, The Meridians, uh, Run, which all dealt with the worst thing I could think of, which was losing a child, a family member, 
or a, a circle of friends because having been cut off, I understood how horrifying it was in the real meaning of the term. And so not only was it a way of getting control, but once I faced that kernel of horror, I, I, not to sound really, really crass, but I could exploit it. I could use it um, because I had looked at it. You know, once you kill the dragon, you get to use the dragon scales as shields and armor. And the same thing applies in your storytelling. Once you look at the thing, if you're writing horror especially, once you look at the thing that scares you most and figure out why it is so scary, you will be able to scare the out of anybody. Okay? But you really have to, to face yourself. And it is cathartic because in, in seeing it, you come to understand it. You can deal with it better. But first, you really do have to walk into that darkness. And I'm not saying you have to like smoke cigarettes and wear black and brood all the time. But you have to really face the things that make you tick. Because like my father very aptly said, uh, horror is designed to elicit a primal response. And primal is not the, the accoutrements and ornaments we put on in culture and civilization. Primal is the base stuff that really makes you tick. And it is impossible to write a scary movie or a scary book unless you have enough self-awareness to at least know what scares you. If you can't figure out what scares you, how the heck are you going to connect with another human being to scare that person? That was wonderful. Yeah. It was brilliant. I had and one other point. You have to be willing to follow those perceptions wherever they lead you and to whatever end it leads you, even if it means killing one of the children that lives in this house. For that reason, my daughter-in-law will never read the slab, and I don't want her to. And, and I have never forgiven you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he was such a cute kid. <laughs> I called my father. I, there is a kid that dies, and I called my dad in the slab, and I yelled at him because he, sh he knew what I had gone through, and he should have prepared me. You know, but it made it, it made it a really amazing, powerful piece. And the same when I sold a movie called um, uh, Barricade, and the first thing the studio person said when they were talking about buying it was, "Do the kids really die?" Which is not a popular way to end a movie in America. And, um, and we had a long talk about it, and we ended up dealing with the, the uh, ending in a variety of ways, but, but at the core, it wasn't whether they died or not, it was facing that threat. Because really, the bad thing about losing a kid isn't the lost kid, it's the fact that you could lose another one. And you have to be able to create that sense of anything could be lost. The things that make you most you could be taken. That's what is scary. We are out of time. Um, this podcast has been wonderful. Thank you both. Um, I think I'm going to make our writing prompt the um, fairy tale that is unadaptable. Um, <laughs> about the woman who starts on fire by getting close, too, too close to the fire. Dan? The, the modern retelling of the uh, yeah. old lady who gets lit on fire. Okay. Yeah, modern retelling of the old lady who gets lit on fire. Uh, go look up that grim fairy tale. <laughs> Thank you guys all for listening, and thank you, audience, for listening through two hours of writing excuses. <laughs> this has been Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. 
Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 